Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Drill to Detail. I'm your guest host, Stuart Bryson. Those of you that have listened to the show in the past uh, may know me as a, as a recurring guest. Um, and Mark has taken the day off from this recording uh, for a couple of reasons. He, he um, wanted me to, to step in and, and do a guest host and also the subject matter, which is Apache Kafka. And the Confluent platform is one that, that he knows I'm I'm an avid fan of. So so here you are. You've got a Yank uh, recording on Drill to Detail. So here we go. We've got uh, two great guests from Confluent who are joining us to discuss Apache Kafka and the Confluent platform. First up is Robin Moffat. He's uh, a develop, developer advocate at Confluent. Robin, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do there at, as a developer advocate for Confluent? Sure. Thanks. Thanks for having us on the show. Um, so yeah, I'm a developer advocate, which is, it's a really cool role. It's something I, I massively enjoy. Um, as the name implies, it's advocating for developers, both kind of to them and uh, explaining how technology can help them, uh, but then also advocating for them back internally. So taking feedback from developers, uh, acting as a as a developer um, and working with our products and kind of feeding back to engineering and product and so on about uh, certain directions or functionality within the uh, the software itself. So it's a, it's a lot of fun. So it's writing blogs, doing talks, uh, working with developers in the community. All the stuff we used to have to try to find time for um, instead of it being our our main job, right, Robin? Yeah, and it's it's funny because it's the kind of thing which I never knew actually existed. I didn't realize that was kind of a job, a profession that you could do in of itself um, until my now boss um, told me a couple of years ago at Open World, hey, go and look and have a look at this this conference track. Um, and I went and sat in on it. It was a whole bunch of talks all about developer relations. And it's like, oh, wow, this thing actually exists. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, and it's so important today in the, in the time of the cloud um, because... You know, things are readily available, but uh, but you're not really sure what exists or what's the best route to, to getting to know them. So uh, Ricardo's been quiet as Robin and I have been bantering on. So Ricardo, why don't you step up, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do there at Confluent as well. Sure. Thanks, Stuart. Um, well, first of all, thanks for having me as well. That's going to be my first <laughs> joint in this episode. Uh, I'm also a developer advocate at Confluent and... Um, like Robin explained it very well, like our job is essentially to make sure developers know a bit more about what they can do uh, with Kafka and Confluent Platform, as well as to help them to bring their struggle and complaints to the our back to our engineering teams and make sure we always come up with a better technology. Uh, before I joined Confluent, uh, Kind of a, it happened very recently. I'm one of the youngest developer advocates on the team, and uh, I was working at Oracle. Uh, kind of, I spent eight years there. And a uh, funny story is that uh, everybody kind of asked me, oh, you work at, at Oracle, so you have you must know a lot of databases and uh, ETL and all that stuff. And I always tell them, yeah, but do you know what? I don't know anything about it because my background was more focused on midware and integration technology. So I just kind of happened to work at Oracle, which happens to work with some other technologies too, although their baby is definitely the database. <laughs> So, uh, Ricardo, what do you think that says about, you know, the three of us on this uh, podcast today discussing Apache Kafka and the Confluent platform are all sort of have our histories in the Oracle world? Is that just because Oracle was that prevalent um, in almost all spaces or is there something specific about that background? What do you think that that leads us into 
some of these more modern technologies? Um, yeah, I, I would agree that uh, it has to do with the fact that Oracle was kind of a prevalence uh, everywhere, especially if we go back to 20 years ago. And uh, they definitely had this, had a finger on how do we manage and process data. However, and like any technology, uh, things evolve, right? So we are always looking for better ways to do things and more efficiently and more effective. And I think the futures kind of has a different uh plan for what we used to do 20 years ago. And one of the things that are we are sucking here is, especially at Confluent and everywhere, is to manage data in a more stream processing way. So yeah, I think Oracle had some something to do with our history here. What a great, what a great lead in to the next question. So you both uh, discussed uh, the Confluent platform. And Robin, why don't you step up and, you know, there's Apache Kafka there's the Confluent platform. Do you want to, you know, take our listeners through just a little bit of an overview of the of what those are and what the the differences are? Yeah, sure. So, I guess pairing it right back to kind of what Kafka is, because quite a lot of people have heard of it, and not everyone fully understands what it is. So, Kafka at its very very heart is this idea of a, a distributed commit log, um, and I can, we can talk about logs and unbounded streams and stuff like that in a moment, but. Taking that as a given, it's a, it's this distributed system that enables you and acts as an event streaming platform. So it's got integration APIs, it's got stream processing APIs, um, and it's um, it's a project from the uh, Apache Software Foundation. And around that, um, there's Confluent Platform, which builds a bunch of pieces on top of it and gives you the, the tools and technologies that you need to actually build and deploy projects and systems around Kafka itself. So an example of that would be some of the connectors for enabling you to hook it up to, to databases, to uh, Elasticsearch, to uh, HGFS, to S3. Um, it gives you um, a schema registry. So we can talk about that in more detail if we want to, but being able to actually give you a way to kind of store and govern your schemas and your pipelines, um, it gives you KSQL, which is super important. And I guess particularly to our audience here, super interesting given the, the SQL nature of it. And then you've got things like uh, monitoring tools and development um, web UIs. Uh, you've got a whole bunch of, of stuff in there which makes up Confluent Platform. Fantastic. Anything to that you'd like to add on there, Ricardo? Uh, no, I think Robin's explanation was definitely both comprehensive and perfectly right. <laughs> As usual. So yep. moving on. So Robin, you, uh, you you discussed stream processing there for a second. So, I mean, I remember when I was first looking at, at Apache Kafka and it was always the discussion of the distributed commit log, which which still rings true, I I think, and I wouldn't mind getting your, your opinion, but, uh, but it's more than that now, isn't it? I mean, um, what Apache, even Apache Kafka has on top of the core Kafka and what you guys at Confluent put on top of it is all about this, this stream processing paradigm. Do you want to just talk to uh, our listeners about, you know, what, what does that mean stream processing? And, and I, and if somebody has an experience in perhaps batch processing or real time processing, what is, what is really inherently different about stream processing? So I think if it's all right, I'll answer a slightly different question. Uh, we can talk about stream processing, but the kind of the, the bit to understand first is around the events um, and this idea of an event-driven platform. Because is, is that all right? 
I'm kind of yeah. So let's I, do I'm, that. I'm feeding the questions and the answers, but the the stream processing bit makes sense. But I think one of the greatest not mistakes, but things that kind of took me a bit of a while to, to adjust to when I was thinking, learning about Kafka from this this world, this kind of like back 15 years of working with batch systems, is that you, we kind of think of stream processing and it's a streaming system and I'm not doing stream processing in my current work. I don't need real time. Why would I care about it? And it's quite easy to dismiss it because of that. Whereas what Kafka gives us and why Kafka is so powerful is this concept of event-first thinking. And events are actually what power a great deal of the data that we work with. So events enable us to model the real world. Um, so in the same way that when we're building data warehouses, we aggregate data up and that kind of makes things nice and fast to perform with. But once you've aggregated it up, you can't go back from there. So you've got your weekly summaries, but you want to know your daily stuff. You have to have retained that, those, those base figures, otherwise you can't go back from it. And in the same way, events are our, our raw data. Events are actually what happens. And from events, we can, we can aggregate up. We can create state. We can determine um, what happened from those events. But unless we actually capture the events, we lose um, some of the um, fidelity of the data. So Kafka acts as this event streaming platform that lets us capture events and model events and do stream processing on events as well, which is why this answer kind of comes before the, the next bit when you're asking about stream processing. Um, because Kafka is this, it's not only a distributed commit log, it's also an immutable commit log, which means you can't go back and change it. So something happened and then something else happened. You can't go back in time and change things. You might wish you could have done. You might wish that we kind of like started recording and whatever, but sometimes things happen and then you have to kind of, you want to go and change it. You actually, you can't do that if something's immutable, but because it's immutable, that gives it great powers for reasoning about what you've got within it. Um, so, so Kafka is this immutable event log. Something happens, something else happens. So to, to give it a kind of an idea around that, if you think about um, an online website, you, you're kind of you're placing an order on that website. The traditional point of capturing that data, certainly from an analytics point of view, and probably just from an application point of view, is what's in the basket. So one places the order, what's in the basket? And we start to analyze the baskets and say, oh, people buy this, people buy that, people buy whatever. But what we lose in that are, well, how did they make that basket up? What, did, what went into the basket? And did they take things out and change it? And all that, those events around, they put um, uh, some baked beans into the basket and then they put some bread into the basket and then they took the baked beans out and they put tin spaghetti in. All of those different things you lose if you don't capture the events. And some people listening to this will say, oh, well, that's fine. We can also capture those things and we can write them somewhere else and store those in a database because we'd want to analyze it. But that misses the point because then you're building in that bit specifically. Whereas if you're capturing the events, right. you, you get all of that for free. And then you can decide, well, we don't want to know the individual bits. We can just roll it up and you can roll it up, but you can never go backwards from that kind of the initial capture. Yeah, that's a great uh, explanation, Robin, and it does mirror my experience as well, trying to come up to speed with, with what you've described, which is the, the concept of, of what an event is, being, having spent so much time with relational databases and looking at the, the layout of, of the data as it's recorded or, or, or as it exists today uh, and not necessarily the tiny bits of structure that, that caused it to, to build up to the, to the, 
to the point it is today. And I think that's what you're talking about. Ricardo, is that is that a similar experience? You, I don't I don't believe you came from sort of the data warehousing background that Robin and I did. Um, what's your what's your experience with events and and what that means to to Apache Kafka and the Confluent platform? Sure. Yeah. No. Definitely. I I hadn't came from any the data warehouse or database background, but um, the way I like to look string processing, and that's how I think most people these days are could agree with, is that uh, about two aspects. The first one is, like any technology, I think we always kind of uh, focus on what we can do by the in a given point of time in history. Like for example, if we go back twenty or thirty years ago. We had this concept of database very well established, and pretty much every developer, DBA, or database architect were thinking in two ways to process data. First, we have to acquire and store, period, right? And then we could come up as developers with uh, processing and application that would query the data that is stored fundamentally and bring it to memory to start processing. So. If you think about it, it's a two-step process. It takes time. It introduced bad latency, as Robin uh, like to explain and on his presentation, which is pretty good. And uh, we've spent the last 30 years doing things like this pretty much because this is how the database technology work. I mean, uh, they were meant to store data and process data later, period, right? But then something starts changing, and that something is the need for some companies and organizations these days to uh, not only to store, acquire, and store data in a given point in time, but at the same time, not one day, not one week later, not one month later, but at the same time to start processing it as well. And the need for this is for giving proper near real-time insight or to come up with some actionable insight that would change some outcome of the business. And that is, I think, it's the heart of string processing. So it's, it's a two, two key pieces. The first one is the evolution of the technology. So coming up with new type of databases, let's call streaming databases, that are able to store data and process data as the event is in motion to feed the use cases that people are kind of looking for more frequently these days, which is, take for instance, Uber. Uh, if you think about Uber, it's all about bringing static data, the information about the passenger and the driver, as well as the data that is in motion, such as the or their position in a GPS position, and blending them together in such a way that you can actually come up with, a, hey, so that means that the driver is two, way, two minutes away from me. So that's the type of motivation for string processing. And that's the way I like to see and pretty much, I think everybody will agree with that. That's the future about how do we see and process data. That's great, Ricardo. And I think that leads in well to the to our next discussion, which is uh, I wanted to talk about when you start to think about a new platform or um, a new piece of software, it's difficult to just inject that into a current environment. And I think that's where Kafka Connect comes in. I think one of the reasons that it was so easy for me personally to get up to, and running with Kafka is it was so easy to get data into it from a bunch of different systems. Robin, do you want to talk about um, what Kafka Connect is and why, you know, in my mind, it's it's a big differentiator and and maybe you could tell us a little bit about what that means? Yeah, sure. Kafka Connect, Kafka Connect's kind of one of my favorite bits because it's it kind of brings in my, uh, kind of like my previous experience with databases into kind of my passion for Kafka um, because it is this, it's part of Apache Kafka and it's, it acts as a, an integration API, basically a streaming integration, both with systems upstream 
where you want to pull data, you want to stream data into Kafka, and also for taking data from Kafka uh, and pushing it out to other places. Um, so, for example, you've got a bunch of data sat in a database, uh, in flat files, on message queues, and you want to get that into Kafka. Um, maybe you want to get it into Kafka because you then want to push it down somewhere else. So just building a, a pipeline, maybe doing some kind of database offload for analytics, but also for getting data into Kafka to then drive event-driven applications that want to respond to something happens somewhere else, and we want to be able to respond to that. Or you want to do some processing on it and use something like KSQL to actually build stream processing applications against this data. So Kafka Connect's actually dead easy to use because it's just configuration files. You say, I've got data in this place over here, bring it into this topic, um, or you've got data in this topic here, push it out to that place. And there are hundreds of different connectors. There's connectors from Confluent Platform. There's connectors from um, software partners like Oracle. There's also connectors from the community. So you find a connector for your particular technology, whether it's a database, whether it's uh, Elasticsearch, whether it's Influx, whether it's whatever technology, and you simply plug that into Kafka Connect and set up the configuration file and off you go. So that was a great uh, introduction to Kafka Connect, Robin. Are there are there other ways that, or other integration points or other ways that people might get either data into Kafka or out of Kafka? Yeah, sure. So so Kafka Connect is definitely what people use where it's kind of like it's a, it's a given existing technology. So I want to plug it into a database. You use Kafka Connect. You definitely don't want to uh, sit there writing your own program to pull data when there's kind of that wheel exists already. There's no need to go and reinvent it. Um but you also see where people have more bespoke systems or applications. There's a huge number of uh, client libraries for Java and C and .NET and so on, where people can actually integrate directly into their applications. There's also a REST proxy. So if you've got an application that wants to pull or push data uh, to and from Kafka um, and wants to do so over HTTP, you can use the REST proxy to do that as well. And just for a point of clarification, just for, so our listeners um, understand, so you mentioned the client libraries, and those are Apache Kafka proper. The REST proxy, though, that's Confluent Platform. Is that correct? So the Java uh, client libraries are part of Apache Kafka, and then Confluent. Um, we've got a bunch of different client libraries built around LibRD Kafka for C, C++, uh, .NET, Python, and the REST proxy as well are part of Confluent Platform. Fantastic. So, um, so Robin, you mentioned. KSQL um, just a few minutes ago, which which is a, a you know a reasonably new. It's the new kid in the Confluent platform. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what that is and and uh, you know how people are using it, how your customers are using it? Yeah, definitely. So KSQL is a it's a SQL um, interface that enables you to build streaming applications on top of your data in Kafka. So I suppose. What it isn't, and it's kind of important to get this out of the way, is that it is not a way of hooking up Tableau or whatever your analytics visualization tool of choice is. Um, it's not a way to hook that up to Kafka. I mean, you could do, and there is a community JDBC driver for it, but that's not what KSQL is about. So I'm saying that up front just because it's it's important to set um, expectations and understandings about what KSQL is. KSQL is for building stream processing applications. It's so cool because if you think about the kind of um, ways in which people work with data, more often than not, they will use SQL to explore it. They will be writing 
um, SQL statements to say, I'm going to take this lump of data in my data warehouse. I'm going to filter it. I'm going to look for this kind of condition. And that's the, the interesting insights that you're pulling out of the data. You can take that SQL statement with those where's and those havings and the group bys and so on. And you can run that as a KSQL statement to not only act on all of your existing data in Kafka, but also all of the data as it arrives. And when KSQL runs a, a SQL statement, it's a continuous query. So unlike when you go and query Oracle or you go and query Postgres or whatever, it's a static query. You run the query and you get some data back. Well, you don't get data back, but you get a result. And then you have to rerun it if you want to know if the data changed. With KSQL, it's a continuous query because it's running against Kafka and Kafka is unbounded. It's an infinite stream of data. So there may be no new messages arriving at the moment, but there may be some more coming in five minutes, 10 minutes, a year, who knows, but it's it's unbounded. So KSQL queries run continually. And the output of a KSQL query goes into a new Kafka topic. You can have it echo it to your console instead if you want, but when you're actually building these stream processing applications, it's writing the outputs to a Kafka topic. And because it's a Kafka topic, that means it can be consumed by pretty much anything because everything integrates with Kafka. So you can use KSQL to build out very complex stream processing applications. You can also use KSQL to simply build out building blocks of stream processes, which filter a topic here, join two topics over there, aggregate this data here, and consume the results from that in your own applications, in uh, data stores downstream for analytics. But however you want to consume your data out of Kafka, you can um, enrich and modify that data as it passes through Kafka using KSQL. Yeah, I think that was a, a, a huge uh, benefit when, when you start thinking about, A, that people are, are used to SQL as a way to, to take a look at data, but also Robin, to someone from our background, we're used to SQL being the language by which we do process data. And I think for, for, for Confluent to have, you know, acknowledged that and, and given um, a layer that allows us to, to not only query, but also process uh, using SQL is a big differentiator. The other way that we would think about, uh, in, you know, processing data within Apache Kafka is... Kafka Streams. Do you want to talk a little bit about the relationship between Kafka Streams and KSQL? Yeah, sure. So KSQL is built on top of Kafka Streams. So Kafka Streams is an API within Apache Kafka. KSQL is part of Confluent Platform. Um, so KSQL will build out a Kafka Streams topology and execute using Kafka Streams. Kafka Streams is, I suppose, like a lower level API um, or other KSQL is a higher level abstraction on top of Kafka Streams. If you're writing Java, if you want to do stream processing within your Java application, you can bring in Kafka Streams as a library and do your filtering, your enrichment, your transformations, your aggregations within uh, your Java application and deploy it in exactly the same way you deploy your Java applications. You don't need to have a new cluster specifically for your stream processing and so on. Um, you just write your Java applications as before. Ricardo, anything you'd like to add to the uh, KSQL discussion? Uh, yeah, actually, um, picking up what Robin was saying about the relationships and the differences between Kafka Streams and KSQL, there is another kind of architectural motivation for why 
KSQL exists, and it's a minor, but it's a very important one when you are thinking and doing stream processing within your team and your development team. Uh, if you think about it, Kafka Streams is a Java library. It's a Java or a Scala library where developers bring up into their applications, and when they're writes, finished writing their applications, that's going to become JVMs, right? So runtime processes that it will bring data into memory, and it will kind of a doing the string process on it, but there is a problem with that. I mean, uh, although it's cool to bring string processing within your applications, but if you are doing some intense aggregation on it, you might end up with a very bloated and a very large heap JVM, which is going to incur in a lot of memory problems such as garbage collection and stop the work pauses. And that's going to be not very pleasant for the application itself. So the architect, one of the architectural motivations for why KSQL exists, not only like Robin explaining, providing a DSL, a language that abstracts the whole string processing using Java, using an SQL based language, but the other one is to have their own dedicated cluster where you can run string processing there in their own JVM separated from your applications. And that way you can kind of scale out your workloads in a string processing layer different from your application layer. So in the end of the day, KSQL is also a solution for a scalability problem that might raise when you're doing uh, string processing applications. So there you have it. Great. So that's great to understand. I know that when I first started looking at Apache Kafka some years ago, the, the, the standard sort of architecture, at least the use cases I saw, were often with Apache Kafka feeding Spark applications. Or, um, how, does, how does today's lineup of sort of solutions inside of both the Apache Kafka ecosystem and the Confluent platform, how does that sit next to um, Spark uh, clusters and Spark distributions, when would you go sort of in one direction versus um, the other? Uh, either one of you guys want to want to jump in on that? Yeah, I have I have some opinions about this uh, design pattern using Spark and uh, KSQL or Kafka Streams. I mean, my main uh, inclination for using Kafka Streams or KSQL is because they were built on top of the consumer API, which is a proving, battle-proving technology that provides you the whole partitioning model, scalability problem. In the event of brokers failures or the consumer group failures, you have the whole rebalancing protocol taken in action. So by having this framework layer built on top of something that's proving like the consumer API, I think we can provide a very seamless experience for the key SQL developers to not worry about those details, right? And what I see in other uh, string processing framework, I'm not, I'm not saying they are bad or wrong, I mean, or bad or good. What I'm saying is that those building blocks, let's call it building blocks, they are kind of become more relevant for the developers. So they're exposing to these complexities and they somehow that need to solve it by themselves when you are dealing with some other framework, right? Um, and of course, some of the, I think, Spark streaming, uh, it also, it's also based on some sort of a consumer API from Kafka. In, in, in a very underlying level, it also leveraged the same APIs but I'm pretty sure that some of those building blocks all often come up when you are doing Spark streaming, uh, micro-batching, because the semantics of doing processing is different. So I think the main difference is, is how, for the upper layer development, those building blocks are abstracted. And that's one of the things that KSQL and Kafka Streams do very well, which is abstract the 
underlying complexities about partitioning, scalability, rebalancing, and failover. You know. Excellent, Robin. Did you have any any uh, feedback on that or any follow up um, on that? It comes up pretty much all the time when we talk about uh, Kafka streams and a case case equal. Um, I suppose just on top of what Ricardo said, sometimes it's going to be a bit more um, mundane reason, which is just an existing technology is there. And so if someone's already using Flink, they're already using Spark streaming, I wouldn't particularly advocate go and rip it out and replace it because that's kind of um, fairly pointless unless there is a specific thing which it doesn't do that one of the others does. Um, so it's like with all technologies, it's always fun to kind of use something different. Um, there's pretty much feature parity on most things across most of these tools. Some of the older ones are kind of um, less frequently updated nowadays and a bit long in the tooth, so you may not opt for those. I think it's when you're starting on a, from a, a, a greenfield and you think, well, my data is going to be in Kafka. It's it's definitely going to be in Kafka. It's an event-driven system, so we're using Kafka. That's step number one. Step, step number two is how much broader do I, my, do I want my technology footprint to be? And you might think, well, I'm going to use this other thing for this particular reason, and that's fine. But I think my kind of my guiding rule on this always is like, well, I'd start off with what's in the box already. So I've already got Kafka streams. Uh, if I want to use SQL with it, I've got key SQL on top of it, and kind of broaden out from there. Yeah, I think that makes sense. It's like, do I do I really need another cluster? I mean, that's what you're talking about. Spark's not just another library that you add. It's actually another cluster you add. So I think the question I'd always, that I always talk to customers about is, do you, do you need another cluster? Maybe you do. And if you do, then, then let's build one. But if you don't, let's keep the one cluster we have. Is that about, is that about yeah. sound right? So talking, so did you want to follow up on that, Ricardo? No, just a quick comment about uh, some of the motivations that we've seen at Confluent about why some customers kind of choose Spark Streaming. It's not necessarily a technical motivation, but sometimes it's more like a, or they are a development firm that are specialized in doing Spark Streaming. And uh, they kind of uh, have their own kind of a task force uh, specialized on that technology. So sometimes it's not just about choosing the technology because why it is best, but sometimes it's because it's that knowledge that they have it for doing steam process. So they settle for where the data is, which is Kafka, and they use a Spark or Spark or Flink because that is the technology that had, they have been building their processing for the last five years. I know. So sometimes is the some market trends that we've seen that's not necessarily tied to technical aspects. Yeah, and that's that's a great lead into, you know, we were sort of at a high level talking about trying to make developers' lives easier, or at least architecturally, um, making making it easier to run systems. And I think that's a good lead into to the Confluent Cloud. And, you know, these, there's been some really great announcements. Um, it seems like you guys just keep hitting them with, with more announcements around um, Confluent Cloud and uh, different options and, and uh, more availability and et cetera. Um, Ricardo, do you want to maybe just give us a high level of where Confluent sits with uh, your cloud offerings um, and sort of give us a lay of the land so that we can see the different ways we might think about that? Sure, sure. Um, I think that the best way to explain this and Confluent Cloud is to discuss a little bit what managed services are. Uh, if you think about it, if you go back 10 years ago when the whole cloud thing kind of started, we were thinking in fundamental building blocks, which is basically infrastructure, like uh, making sure infrastructure was so easy to consume 
that developers could focus on what they do best, which is writing code and building applications, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then something else happened, which is the which is the explosion of PaaS platform as a services components, where not only infrastructure was provided as a service, but also kind of a pre-build frameworks and components that developers could simply uh, spin up and use and shorten their development times. So one great example that I would like to give about um, uh, managed services is uh, BigQuery from GCP, for example. So if you want to work with TerraScale kind of a database and you don't want to worry about how to set up, how to install it, patch it, secure or manage, you can simply go to the GCP console or CLI and spin up your new BigQuery uh, table and there you have it. I mean, five five minutes later, you have an up and running big TerraScale database that you can start using it and hooking up with your application. So the whole, although some people kind of say that cloud computing is all about reducing costs, my take on this is that cloud computing is also about making sure you become truly agile. So you build things faster. And managed services are a very good indication where we are leading towards to that direction. So going back to your original question, Stuart, so what is Confluent Cloud? It is a managed service. So it's a way to offer our customers uh, Pashi Kafka as something that they don't necessarily have to worry about how to install, how to patch it, how to provision, how to manage, how to scale it. And the end result of this is that, hey, five minutes later, you don't worry about the Kafka cluster anymore. You don't worry about the schema registry anymore. You don't worry about some of the services that we are introducing into Confluent Cloud, such as KSQL or Kafka Connect, and you jump straight to what really matters and what really provides value to the organization, which is building applications. Yeah, I agree. I'm, uh, I tweeted the other day, uh, you know, that, that your newest offering, you know, it's just give me an API and some SQL. Um, as a developer, that's all I need. Robin, what does that really mean for developers? And, and you guys are both in the, in, the, in the line of work where you're trying to ease the friction for developers. What does it really mean for a developer to have these kind of options uh, to, to bring Kafka into their, into their um, architecture? So I suppose by making it all available um, as a managed service, it's one less thing to have to worry about and get set up before you can actually start being productive. Um, so if you've got your data flowing through Kafka, um, which obviously persists the data for as long as you want it, as a developer, you can now uh, spin up a KSQL instance and start rate, writing your streaming queries against that data um, and transforming it and enriching it and writing it somewhere else without first having to worry about setting up a cluster, managing that cluster, and so on. Yeah, excellent. And so there was a, you guys had a big announcement at Google Cloud Next this year. Uh, Ricardo, do you want to talk a little bit about what that announcement was and um, what it means for, for listeners of this podcast? Sure, sure. Um, so the announcement pretty much was that uh, GCP, Google Cloud, were partnership with some very strategic companies to bring a more clear and open source version of their key technologies. So I'm going to mention two of them. So the first one is going to be Radis. So GCP is providing a first Radis clusters as a first cloud system. And pretty much what they did was partner up with Radis Labs, which is going to take care of the whole clustering and provisioning uh, for them. But, but what is more important from that is that for the GCP customer or user, they're going to be able to spin up Radis clusters straight from their GCP console or CLI. Same goes for Apache Kafka cluster. So 
what GCP did was partner up with uh, Confluent. So pretty much all the clusters that developers will spin up from GCP or CLI will be actually provisioned by Confluent and more importantly, managed by Confluent. So what that means for the users is that is a peace of mind that their, their experience within that specific cloud provider is going to be all the same. So the same way, the same simplicity that they spin up BigQuery tables, they're going to spin up Apache Kafka clusters. So that is a value that the GCP as a cloud provider is bringing to the users, which is pretty cool. But more important than that is the relationship about how GCP is outsourcing their uh, their cloud experience to what we call the domain experts. I mean, Confluent is known for having a pretty good and very large knowledge in terms of how to provision cluster in the cloud. So it's kind of a smart move from Google to kind of a, a rely on domain experts for doing that instead of building their own cloud services by themselves, which it's not very scalable because they're, again, they're not experts on Apache Kafka. So that's, that's pretty much what the announcements were. Yeah, that's great. I mean, Mark spends a lot of time on this podcast talking about offerings inside of GCP and also, the listeners to this podcast are, are regularly hearing about you know, how to make their lives easier, how the cloud can make their lives easier. And I think this last uh, um, announcement really does um, speak to what it means to, to really you know, make, make Kafka available and Confluent in general available to a, to a, a much wider audience. Those, those organizations that may be smaller or don't have infrastructure and don't have the expertise to run big systems. Um, now it's, it's really just a few clicks away. So I think we're going to wrap up here. And, and uh, so Robin, you want to tell the listeners how um, perhaps they might find out more about uh, Apache Kafka and the Confluent platform and Confluent in general? Yeah. So confluent.io um, is our website. You can go and download it from there. We've got a bunch of uh, quick start tutorials um, if you want to try it for yourself, you can go and download it. Uh, we've got a, an examples uh, repository on our GitHub. Um, that you can go and try them there. There's one called Demo Scene as well. Um, it's all uh, on Docker, so it's easy to just spin the whole thing up. Um, so there's some good places to get started. And Ricardo, anything to add there that, where the uh, our listeners may, may want to try some things out? Uh, yeah, I actually would uh, would like to recommend to taking a look for Confluent Cloud. I mean, it's very, very easy to start using Kafka through that route. I mean, uh, if you go to Confluent Cloud and create your account, uh, I guarantee you that five minutes later, you will have your Kafka cluster running. So I think it's important to um, for developers that are trying to focus on the de- developing part and go into Confluent Cloud, which is basically... Um, Conflict.io slash cloud, uh, you're going to end up there. Uh, so we do have lots of uh, repositories that shows code pointing to Confluent Cloud. So I think that's our point is to make developers' life easier as we go with our jobs. Robin, anything to add on that? Yeah, just one more thing that I forgot uh, to mention originally. Uh, we've got a, a Slack uh, group, uh, the Confluent uh, Platform Slack group, Confluent Community. Um, there's like 9,000 people on there. There's tons of people uh, from the community. There's Confluent people on there. So that's a great place to go if you've got questions about uh, specifics of this. Uh, there's different channels for each different parts of Confluent platform. There's also a mailing list, um, and there's also Stack Overflow and places like that as well. Some good resources there. 
That's fantastic. So we'll make sure that we put uh, the Docker links, the Confluent cloud links, and also the, the um, Slack links in the show notes so that our listeners can get to that easily. So Robin, Ricardo, really appreciate you guys taking some time today to join us on the Drill to Detail podcast. Um, thanks again. And for Mark Rittman, uh, this is Stuart Bryson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>